Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather coming to you with the Beyond the Pearls OBGYN podcast. Thank you for joining me today. We're going to be talking about a 36-year-old woman with headache in pregnancy, and we're going to discuss some of the differential and the treatment that goes on when you have a patient in late trimester of pregnancy who presents to you with this symptom. This chapter is case 12, if you're following along in the Beyond the Pearls Morning Report OBGYN book, and it's on page 83. And the chapter was written by Dr. Hind Musa at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. So let's get to our patient. A 36-year-old African-American G1P0, so a primogravid woman, at 33 weeks and two days gestation presents with worsening headache of two days duration. The pain is not severe, but it is persistent and is currently affecting her vision. She's had migraines in the past and thought she might be having one at first, but this headache, she says, is different, and she's having some blurry vision rather than her usual photophobia that she has with migraines. Her medications include prenatal vitamins and ferrous sulfate. So let's get into this patient. Why is it important to ask about headache in pregnancy? Any neurological symptoms in pregnancy and the postpartum period may be caused by exacerbation of a pre-existing neurological condition the initial presentation of a non-pregnancy-related problem, or the development of a new neurological problem, particularly ones due to pregnancy. The most common pregnancy-related diagnosis remains preeclampsia. Always have to think about preeclampsia when a pregnant patient walks in with a headache. It is estimated that hypertensive disorders of pregnancy complicate about 10% of pregnancies, so not an unusually low number. And preeclampsia complicates about 3% of pregnancies in the United States. So when a woman has a headache in pregnancy, what do you need to know about her history? What might be clues that might point you in the direction of preeclampsia? So remember, headache is a symptom. It's not a diagnosis in and of itself. Uh, You should get a detailed evaluation about a prior history of headaches, like we did in this woman who has some migraines, because headaches of any kind, including migraines, can continue or get worse during pregnancy. Asking about characteristic symptoms of the headache as well as other associated symptoms that they usually have is important because it can help you tease out if there's something new going on here. Neurologic emergencies should be suspected early and indications for neuroimaging and lumbar puncture are the exact same as that in non-pregnant patients. So a careful and detailed history should include a pre-pregnancy hypertension because it's the second most common cause of maternal death in the United States. And unfortunately, African-American women have a four-fold increased mortality rate from hypertension. The mortality rate is also increased in women over 35. Our woman is a 36-year-old African-American with her first pregnancy. Preeclampsia may be considered in any pregnant women over 20 weeks of gestation, that's our patient, who presents with a headache. This patient, despite a long-standing history of migraine headaches, reports that her headache is different from her typical which is something that should definitely put up red flags for you. It's different in nature as well as worsening. A preeclampsia-related headache is typically diffuse, it's usually constant, and it can be anywhere on the severity scale. It can be very mild or it can be quite severe. So just because she's saying it's not killing her, 
don't uh, necessarily rule out a preeclampsia-related headache. Also, the associated visual changes in this patient are pretty typical of preeclampsia with blurry vision or scotomata, and thus support a diagnosis of preeclampsia being suspected in the lady in front of us. So in addition to her headache, what other information should we get from the patient? We want to know about other symptoms of preeclampsia, not just her cerebral visual symptoms, but we want to know about any persistent right upper quadrant or epigastric pain, particularly if it's unresponsive to treatment. Oftentimes, women with pregnancy have reflux or GERD, so they'll frequently come in with epigastric pain or upper abdominal pain, but it usually responds to treatment with anti-reflux medications or antacids. So if you have someone who comes in with epigastric or right upper quadrant pain who doesn't respond to those, you should be suspicious. We also want to get symptoms that might indicate that she has pulmonary edema. She should be asked about any recent pain medication intake that might be mitigating symptoms she's having, decreasing the headache, decreasing right upper quadrant pain, etc. In addition, if she complains of any chest pain or shortness of breath, she needs to be evaluated for pulmonary edema. Edema in the dependent and non-dependent regions is really common in pregnancy, right? A lot of ladies, particularly late in pregnancy, have pitting edema, particularly in the lower extremities. So, of course, pulmonary edema or edema in general is not an essential diagnostic criterion of preeclampsia, but pulmonary edema is because that's not normal. Although it's commonly present in the setting of preeclampsia, the lower extremity edema, that's not diagnostic for preeclampsia. Pulmonary edema is. Preeclampsia syndrome can be kind of subdivided into preeclampsia both with and without severe features. The distinction, of course, is based on the severity of the hypertension as well as the involvement of other organ systems. The task force on hypertension in pregnancy no longer puts preeclampsia as mild versus severe. In its severe form, defining by having severe features, and the mild form is now just referred to as preeclampsia without severe features. So let's review what the proper terminology is for classification of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy nowadays. So there's uh, six different categories. First one is gestational hypertension. So what is hypertension in general? It's the same as it is when you don't have a pregnancy on board. It's greater than 140 millimeters mercury systolic and or greater than 90 millimeters mercury diastolic. In gestational hypertension, there's no proteinuria, no symptoms, and the systolic blood pressure, although greater than 140, is less than 160. The diastolic, although greater than 90, is less than 110. So gestational hypertension occurs when you have a new diagnosis of hypertension in a pregnant woman, usually greater than 20 weeks of gestation. And you don't have the diagnosis of chronic hypertension that pre-existed the pregnancy or was present at less than 20 weeks gestation. So then we get into preeclampsia. Now preeclampsia is gestational hypertension at greater than 20 weeks of gestation, plus the presence of proteinuria. So you have the same definition of the systolic and diastolic blood pressures, but you have proteinuria, either 300 milligrams in a 24-hour urine collection, or a protein-creatinine ratio greater than 0.30, or greater than equal to 1 plus on dipstick. So keep in mind, if you're evaluating this person in OB triage, and you have to get a result quickly, you can get a spot protein-creatinine ratio or a urine dipstick that's reliable, and that can help you diagnose the condition quickly. The third category, preeclampsia with severe features. Now, we talked about what preeclampsia is. It's nuanced hypertension with any of the following. 
So very severe hypertension is defined by a systolic greater than 160 or a diastolic greater than 110 or both. And one of these symptoms, persistently severe cerebral symptoms, thrombocytopenia, 100,000 per uh, microliter, elevated liver enzymes, more than two times the upper limit of normal, pulmonary edema, remember we talked about that, and a serum creatinine of 1.1 milligrams per deciliter or higher. So to have severe features, you have to meet the definition of preeclampsia and either have severe hypertension or one of those symptoms that I mentioned. The fourth category is chronic hypertension. Now, chronic hypertension can complicate any pregnancy, right? Any woman can become pregnant and have had hypertension before. That's hypertension that existed either prior to the pregnancy or existed prior to 20 weeks gestation. And it has the same definition as any other kind of hypertension, right? Greater than 140 milligrams mercury systolic and or greater than 90 milligrams mercury diastolic. Now, you can have superimposed preeclampsia. This is the fifth category on top of that. That's exacerbation of hypertension and or new onset proteinuria and or a sudden increase in proteinuria that happens on top of chronic hypertension. Now, since you can have superimposed preeclampsia, of course, you can have the sixth category, which is you can have superimposed preeclampsia on top of chronic hypertension with severe features. So that's chronic hypertension with meeting the definition of superimposed preeclampsia, so worsening of the blood pressure, worsening of proteinuria, or new onset proteinuria. And you have some of the criteria from category three, which is to say a blood pressure that's very high, greater than 160 systolic, greater than 110 diastolic, or one of the severe organ involvement symptoms. So severe cerebral symptoms, thrombocytopenia, elevated liver enzymes, pulmonary edema, or an elevated serum creatinine greater than 1.1. Okay, so now that we have reviewed all these different kinds of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, let's get back to our patient and work her up. So wait a minute, what about the fetus? Are there any fetal considerations that need to be evaluated while we're doing the evaluation on the pregnant mother? In regards to fetal outcomes, unfortunately, perinatal mortality and perinatal death are higher in pregnancies complicated by preeclampsia. Fetal growth restriction is the more common one of these with chronic hypertension and is usually associated with superimposed preeclampsia. Fetal assessment should be done through ultrasonographic evaluation of estimated fetal weight because you can get growth restriction, an amniotic fluid index because you can get oligohydramnios or low fluid around the baby, a non-stress test or what we call an NST, and a biophysical profile, a BPP, to assess well-being. So in our patient, we should do all these things, including monitoring fetal heart tones because this patient's also at increased risk of poor ureteroplacental perfusion and even abruption of the placenta, so the placenta coming off the wall of the uterus and not being able to supply circulation. So to review, fetal neonatal complications from preeclampsia or hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, you can have severe interuterine growth restriction, oligohydramnios, preterm delivery, and part of that preterm delivery is because when women have severe or preeclampsia with severe features, we often deliver them early, right, to alleviate the issue hypoxia acidosis in the fetal neonate, neurologic injury, or even death. So let's examine our patient and our fetus. 
On physical exam, the patient has a temperature of 36.5 Celsius, a heart rate of 95 a minute, an oxygen saturation of 99% on room air, and a blood pressure of 165 over 100 millimeters mercury. So already your red flags are going up, right? She's met the criteria by systolic blood pressure for having severe hypertension in the setting of later pregnancy. She looks uncomfortable, but she's not in acute distress. Her abdomen is gravid, soft, and non-tender to palpation. She has normal neurologic exam except for sort of brisk tendon reflexes. Really common in preeclampsia. Definitely look out for that. It's part of that sort of uh, neurological excitability that happens in the preeclampsia state. You do an ultrasound on her, and it reveals a normally grown fetus with a biophysical profile of 8 out of 8. Continuous fetal heart rate monitoring is consistent with a Category 1 tracing. Thank goodness it looks like the fetus is doing really well. So what's your next step in managing this patient? In the presence of severe hypertension, defined as a systolic blood pressure of 160 milligram mercury or higher, and or a diastolic of 110 millimeters mercury or higher, the stabilization of uh, maternal status through antihypertensive therapy is recommended at this point. Our patient meets criteria for medical management of her blood pressure as her systolic blood pressure was greater than 160. The choice of which medication you use has to be based on sort of the potential adverse effects as well as the clinician's individual experience and familiarity with that particular med. So intravenous labetalol is an option, IV hydralazine is an option, oral nifedipine are an option, and all these are first-line agents for lowering blood pressure in acute hospital settings. Magnesium sulfate can also be administered for the prevention of an eclamptic seizure. So when a a person is looking like they're going to have preeclampsia with severe features, We might want to lower their risk of eclamptic seizure, and magnesium sulfate is considered first-line agent to decrease the neurological excitability and decrease her risk of seizures, which would be very dangerous. In this woman with a viable fetus um, at 33 and 6, 7 weeks gestation or less, remember she's 32, it's suggested that glucocorticoids for promotion of fetal lung maturity should be used because delivery might happen early, right? So you defer delivery of the fetus for at least 48 hours so you can get the glucocorticoids given to the mother for fetal lung maturity if there's no contraindications to expectant management or associated complications. In other words, if it seems like delivery has to happen right now because of imminent danger to the mother, then you have to do what you have to do. But if you can delay delivery for 44 hours, uh, 48 hours and get the glucocorticoids on board for fetal lung maturity, you'll definitely be wanting to start them at this point. So some contraindications to expected management. So what are those? Those would be pregnancy complications such as preterm premature rupture membranes, active labor, or oligohydramnios. In the same group of patients, it's recommended that delivery not be delayed regardless of gestational age if maternal comp- condition is complicated by uncontrollable severe hypertension, eclampsia, so she's had or is having a seizure, pulmonary edema, abruptio placenta, so that if you're abrupting, you're definitely going to want to deliver the fetus urgently, disseminated intravascular coagulation, so she's having coagulopathy due to her preeclampsia, evidence of non-reassuring fetal status, which would make you want to deliver the baby anyway, or fetal demise that's already happened. Unfortunately, that can occur too. So let's go back to our patient. Right now, we know that the fetus is doing well, but that she has very elevated high blood pressure and we're worried about her having severe features because of her headache. So directly after the patient has her IV access line inserted and blood drawn for labs is done, 
the patient becomes unresponsive and starts having tonic-clonic movements. Uh-oh, so you know she's having a seizure. What's your diagnosis and how would you manage her? So eclampsia is our diagnosis. That's defined as preeclampsia accompanied by the development of new onset grand mal seizures or coma during pregnancy or the postpartum period. It doesn't have to happen when they're still pregnant. It can happen up to six to eight weeks in the postpartum period. With this patient's new onset seizure, the patient now meets criteria for eclampsia. Usually eclamptic seizures, thank goodness, are short in duration. Now they can seem like forever when the patient is having them. Man, you feel like a few seconds is a few hours, but they usually only last seconds to minutes. You have to prevent maternal trauma during the seizure, just like with any seizure event. At the bedside, it's important to protect the patient's airway, secure the patient in a padded area to protect her from trauma, and padded bend rails can be created for the patient. If possible, place her in the lateral position. Not only does that protect her from some trauma, and if she vomits, it allows her not to aspirate, but it also helps to increase blood flow to the fetus during the time that the seizure is going on. So recurrent seizures are prevented through the administration of magnesium sulfate. Remember, I already mentioned when when she walked in with some severe features that we were thinking about giving her magnesium sulfate to prevent a seizure. Since she now has IV access, the IV magnesium sulfate should be given in a loading as well as a maintenance dose. And we're going to plan to proceed with delivery once we finally get her stable, okay? So what are we going to give her as far as loading dose and magnesium? When we're loading her, we're going to give her six grams of magnesium IV, now that she has access, over a course of 20 to 30 minutes. And just in case you're curious, that's six grams of 50% solution diluted in 150 milliliters of D5W. A maintenance dose, after we're done giving her that six gram loading dose, is going to be two to three grams IV per hour, and that's 40 grams suspended in a liter of D5LR, run at a course of 50 milliliters per hour. Uh, recurrent seizures, so let's say she has another seizure despite you loading her and then giving her the magnesium dose, you're going to reload her with two grams over five to ten minutes. And you can repeat that another time if you want to. You also have the option of giving her some sodium amobarbital IV. That's 250 milligrams of sodium amobarbital if she has a recurrent seizure. Um, Now, studies on magnesium sulfate for the management and prevention of eclampsia have shown it's superior to other anticonvulsants, such as phenytoin, diazepam, etc. Patients uh, being treated for eclamptic seizures should receive an IV loading dose, as I mentioned, of 4 to 6 grams of mag. Almost always we do 6, just because if we had a patient seizing right in front of us, like this one, we go for the, the largest dose. And we then follow it by that maintenance dose that I talked about for at least 24 hours following the seizure event or whenever the eclampsia was diagnosed. It's recommended that women with eclampsia should get delivered after they're stabilized. If undergoing a cesarean delivery, the task force recommends intraoperative administration of parenteral magnesium sulfate, so you don't stop the magnesium while they're being delivered or while they're on the operating room table. Okay, so if we were loading her with magnesium, And then we're wanting to know, okay, is she going to become toxic because we're giving her too much magnesium? How do we evaluate those levels clinically? So here's some common findings that you might see in someone who's getting too much magnesium. So they lose patellar reflexes. That's when their levels are about 8 to 12 milligrams per deciliter. So the lab draws correspond to loss of patellar reflexes. Remember, she had hyperactive patellar reflexes from the preeclampsia when she rolled in. 
A feeling of warmth, flushing, or double vision, really common, that's at about 9 to 12 milligrams per deciliter. Somnolence, 10 to 12 milligrams per deciliter. Slurred speech, so now she can't talk to you coherently, 10 to 12 milligrams per deciliter. Muscular paralysis, she can't move, 15 to 17 milligrams per deciliter. You'll also start to have respiratory difficulty in this range, 15 to 17 milligrams per deciliter. Total cardiac arrest or toxicity where no longer can you get cardiac activity or cardiac activity that will cause perfusion happens up at 20 to 35 milligrams per deciliter. So now you guys know a little bit more about the scale of magnesium toxicity. All right, so we are loading our patient with magnesium after she's had a seizure and we're thinking, okay, we're going to stabilize her and then we're going to deliver as soon as possible. So go back to the patient. We do an emergent cesarean delivery. Once the patient stabilizes, and after her delivery, she recovers and does not remember much about her anapartum course. Not unusual at all. There's a lot of women who have seizures that cannot recall things even prior to the seizure due to the neurologic compromise that happened with the preeclampsia prior to the eclamptic event. So there, are there any special considerations for this woman now that she's finally delivered? Big relief, right? We got the baby out. We got the placenta out. The inciting event for the preeclampsia is gone. But how are we going to take care of her after delivery? Postpartum follow-up is absolutely essential. And you have to do very careful monitoring and management of the hypertension in particular. For women in whom gestational hypertension preeclampsia or superimposed preeclampsia has been diagnosed, It's suggested that the blood pressure should be not only monitored in the hospital, but that we should continue to do surveillance for at least 72 hours postpartum or, and again, seven to 10 days after delivery. So these people are the sort of people you want to bring back to your clinic a week or two after delivery to check their blood pressure again. For all women in the postpartum period, not just these women with the hypertensive disorders, it's suggested that discharge instructions include information about the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia, as well as the importance of prompt reporting of something like a severe headache, like severe right upper quadrant pain to their provider. If a woman had persistent postpartum hypertension, so let's say a blood pressure of 150 milligrams mercury systolic or higher, or higher than 100 diastolic on two or more occasions, four to six hours apart or longer, you want to give them hypertensin therapy. I'll say that one again. If you have a blood pressure greater than 150 on the top number and or 100 on the bottom number on two or more occasions, four to six hours or longer apart, you need to give them therapy, antihypertensives. Persistent blood pressure of 160 systolic and or 100 diastolic or higher has to be treated immediately, like within the hour. So usually with these patients on the postpartum ward or in their clinic, you see that blood pressure 170 over 118 come up, you need to get out your IV medications or whatever you're going to use to treat them imminently. Go to the bedside, evaluate them, make sure that they're getting the antihypertensive medication promptly. So what does this patient need to do at home? Let's say the best happens and she is uh, well-controlled in her postpartum period and she can go home. It's thought that preeclampsia can develop secondary to alterations in systemic prostacyclin thromboxane balance. There's also increased inflammation in these preeclampsia patients. Therefore, there's evidence that low-dose aspirin, 81 milligrams or less, an anti-inflammatory agent blocking thromboxane synthesis, might be effective for the prevention of preeclampsia in people that have a history or high risk. For women that have early-onset preeclampsia in their history, so said somebody that had it at less than 34 weeks gestation, or preeclampsia that was in more than one prior pregnancy, so two instances of it in two or more pregnancies, 
it's recommended to initiate daily low-dose aspirin in the late first trimester. So that's prevention that could be done for this woman. Now remember, when our patient rolled in, she was at 33 weeks and two days. So she meets that criteria of being less than 34 weeks of gestation when her uh, eclampsia, her preeclampsia and then subsequent seizure, eclampsia was diagnosed. She would be able to get baby aspirin in a subsequent pregnancy to prevent another preeclampsic episode. The administration of vitamin C or vitamin E has not been proven, unfortunately, to be of any effect in the prevention of preeclampsia. These have been trialed. It's recommended that dietary salt not be restricted during pregnancy also for the prevention of preeclampsia. Bed rest or physical activity restriction is also not recommended for the prevention of preeclampsia. Also, if you're putting patients on bed rest or restriction of physical activity, that can be detrimental to them because it increases their risk of deep venous thrombus events. Okay, so let's sum up our case here. We had a 36-year-old woman, G1P0, at 33 weeks and two days of gestation who presented with a worsening headache of two days duration. She was also having blurred vision. Now remember, she said, I've had migraines in the past, but this isn't like that. History and physical revealed that the patient had preeclampsia by diagnostic criteria of the elevated systolic blood pressure greater than 160, which is common yet serious etiology of headache in pregnancy. She was also at less than 34 weeks gestation and thus required consideration of expectant management. So if she had remained stable, we would have done expectant management with magnesium to prevent seizures, glucocorticoids to the baby to develop fetal lung maturity. However, when we were putting in her IV, she had an eclamptic seizure requiring delivery and further management. After her delivery, fortunately, she recovered and had appropriate postpartum follow-up as well as some preconceptual counseling for a future pregnancy that would include her meeting criteria for having aspirin to prevent preeclampsia or eclampsia in the future. So let's do some beyond the pearls. We're going to give you some extra tidbits here. So preeclampsia must be considered in every pregnant woman over 20 weeks of gestation with a headache. We already knew that. Symptoms of preeclampsia include cerebral visual symptoms, severe persistent right upper quadrant or epigastric pain, unresponsive to treatment, and pulmonary edema. Preeclampsia syndrome is subdivided, remember, into with and without severe features. The distinction between the two is based not only on the severity of the hypertension, but also evidence of the involvement of other organ symptoms. We no longer classify it as mild versus severe. In the presence of severe hypertension, as defined by a systolic blood pressure greater than 160 or diastolic greater than 110 or higher, the stabilization of maternal status through antihypertension therapy needs to be done. Contraindications to expectant management or any associated complications include pregnancy complications such as preterm premature rupture of membranes, PPROM, labor, oligohydramnios. Also, don't delay delivery, regardless of gestational age, if maternal condition is uncontrolled severe hypertension, eclampsia, pulmonary edema, abrupt show placente, disseminated intravascular coagulation, evidence of non-reassuring fetal status or fetal demise. Eclampsia, now let's take it up a notch, is defined as preeclampsia accompanied by the development of new onset grand mal seizures or coma during the pregnancy or the postpartum period, remember it can happen then too, and they shouldn't be attributed to other causes such as epilepsy. The prevention of recurrent seizure is through the administration of magnesium sulfate, remember that's the premier anti-epileptic medication in this state. Postpartum follow-up is absolutely essential and you need to know that that woman isn't developing worsening or continued hypertension that's going untreated. 
For women with early onset preeclampsia and a preterm delivery at less than 34 weeks or preeclampsia in more than one prior pregnancy, remember you can give them low-dose aspirin in a future pregnancy for prevention. Thank you guys so much for listening to this interesting case. And remember to tweet at me at KateMerriweather1 if you have any questions. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis. 